Well, last week I told you that I had never preached out of two passages before, and I thought I, I didn't get in trouble for doing that. And so I thought, I'm going to do it once more and see, see if that's still okay. Uh, so I'm going to preach again out of two passages. We're continuing just this short series on the exile or the return from exile, from Persian captivity back to Jerusalem. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at first Ezra chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And then the next passage after that, we're going to be reading Nehemiah 4, uh, 15 through 20. So the first one, Ezra 8, 31 through 33. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. So we're going to stop there with that verse. And if you would, go on to Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plans, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried the burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So as we looked at the passage last week, we, we saw that Ezra and Nehemiah were both commissioned at different times to go back to Jerusalem. And when Ezra is commissioned, he is sent back to, to help reestablish the temple in temple worship within Jerusalem. And so when Cain Artaxerxes sends him, he doesn't just send him alone, but he tells him, pick some men to go with you, pick some families that want to return with you, and when you go, go ahead and give my treasures to the house of God. So when Ezra is headed out, it's not just him. He goes along and he picks other priests and Levites that can go with him to reestablish the temple as the center of worship. And not only is he going with all of these people, he's going with a lot of treasure. And I mean a lot of treasure. If you can put that slide up, um, earlier in, in this passage, a few verses earlier, you see the number of items that they're going with. 650 talents of silver, 100 talents of silver utensils, 100 talents of gold, and 20 bronze bowls worth 1,000 derricks. Now, I did my best to figure out what would that value be today. And when I looked at, okay, the weight of silver, the weight of gold, the weight of what a derrick is, and, and this is the best that I could come up with, is that the, the silver comes to uh, roughly about $10.7 million dollars. 
The talents of uh, silver utensils, that's 1.6 million. The gold, that comes to 135.8 million. And then the bronze bowls, well, that's only $600,000. So by the end of it all, they are traveling with, with roughly $150 million worth of treasure. They're, they're not just going with like a few traveler's checks, okay? They're not just going with a few items. They're going with a lot. They're going with $150 million worth of gold, silver, and utensils and bowls. And not just going with that amount of money. They're going with money that was originally King Artaxerxes' money and originally their fellow Jews' money. Okay, when he's headed back, Canard Xerxes says, why don't you take some of my treasure to help reestablish the temple? And then he's going to his fellow Jewish families and they're putting in money to the pot. They're making sure that they're contributing to the temple worship. So when Ezra gathers, gathers these supplies, this isn't just from his bank account. This is from the Persian bank account, and this is also from his fellow family's bank accounts. He's traveling with other people's money, and, and so he does a smart move. He doesn't touch any of it. You see this a few verses earlier, is he divides all of the priests and the Levites, and he weighs out all of the silver, all of the gold, and he hands it off to them and basically says, I don't want to touch any of it. Because the last thing I want to be accused of is embezzling from the Persian government. And so he leaves that with the other priests and the other Levites, and they set out on the journey to head back to Jerusalem. And this isn't a small journey. If you go to the next uh, slide here, we're looking at a 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. Uh, to give you an idea of 900 miles, that's from here to about Pennsylvania, uh, about western New York, something like that. And keep in mind, they didn't have vehicles. Keep in mind, they didn't have trains. They didn't go by boat. They went by camels, donkeys, and foot. They went probably as slow as you could imagine. And not only are they walking they're walking with all of these treasures, and not only are they walking and walking with all of these treasures, they are walking with all of their stuff. Because when they're headed back to Jerusalem, a lot of them plan to remain there and live there the rest of their lives. So you're talking this massive entourage that's headed back to Jerusalem, they stick out like a sore thumb. There's no hiding this. There's no way that they can act like they have nothing. You could see them, and with how slow they're going, you have time to prepare for them. You know they're coming along the way. And so you would think, practically speaking, Ezra would say to the king, Hey, king, would it be all right if you sent us, like maybe with an army, that would go on ahead of us and prepare the roads so that we don't lose any of your treasure? Like, if I were in that situation, and there's a lot of biblical situations I'm glad I wasn't in, this is one of them, where I would have said, I, I need an army to escort me. But Ezra is thinking differently than that. Ezra actually thinks the opposite because he's offered 
an army to go, the king's servants that would go ahead of him and protect him along the way. And he says earlier in in chapter 8, he says, no, I don't think we need it. I don't know about you, but I would think otherwise. We did a missions trip a few years ago in Nigeria, and, and we landed at nighttime, and I was talking to a fellow Nigerian on the plane, and, and when he found out that we were meeting somebody, he was very adamant. He said, do not travel at nighttime. He said, we, we don't have lampposts, we don't have lights on the street. It can be very dangerous. When you guys land, you need to get a hotel room. Well, we landed, our friend picked us up, and, and he picked us up, with police officers, uh, and, and we got in, and he was able to get some police officers that would escort us through the city and get us to our hotel room. I'm not worth $150 million. I'm not worth pulling the van over and stealing my stuff. I had a computer and, and a T-shirt. That was it. So if somebody wanted to rob us, I got nothing. They, they have nothing from me, but we still had this escort that was able to get us through and keep us from danger. Ezra's traveling with all of the king's treasure. Ezra's traveling with treasure that comes from his people. And he, and he says to the king, I don't want an army. I want to prove to you that God will protect us along the way. And let me tell you, Ezra was in need of protection. If you go down to that third point here, there is a high probability when you're traveling in that region that you're going to run into enemies. You're going to run into ambushes along the way. And and this is just if you're traveling by yourself. This is just if it's you and your family and a few belongings. People are going to attack you. People are going to lay wait for you. It's already dangerous. But now Ezra is traveling with all of this treasure and without an army escort. As far as the enemy is concerned, they're sitting ducks. They're waiting to be robbed. But Ezra is adamant. He has the faith knowing that God is going to keep them from harm. And if you read here in the passage that we read today, you find out he did get protected from harm. You see that first phrase that said, Uh, the hand of God was over us. So there in in verse verse 31, excuse me, uh, then we journeyed journeyed there from the river, uh, and the hand of our God was over us. It's really interesting when you read this passage and you see that phrase, the hand of God, there's a word there that when it's used in reference to the hand of God, especially in this situation, it means an open hand. It means a hand that is opened, a hand of generosity, but then also when you couple it with the phrase over us, you you get this image that it's a hand that's over top protecting them, That, that literally the hand of God is covering his people, making sure that nobody's going to attack them. When I was in college, my sister got me a puppy for Christmas, and, and when I went to go pick up that puppy, it was just a small little dog about this big. It was the wintertime, and I walked down the street, and when I went and picked him up, I realized I didn't have a leash. I didn't have anything to cover him with, so I just was able to tuck him right into my coat, and his little head was poking out as I walked back to my house in the middle of wintertime. This is sort of the image that you get when Ezra says that God's hand was over them. 
God's hand is protecting them from any dangers that they might have. It's an open hand, a hand that's giving, but also a hand that's protecting. And watch what happens when he says this phrase, the hand of God was over us. He then moves on and says, the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy in ambushes along the way. That word hand that's used in reference to the enemy is a different kind of hand. It's a closed hand. It's a hand that takes. It's a hand that removes something. And so Ezra here is setting up a contrast between the hand of God that protects and gives to the hand of the enemy that wants to take away. And, and, and when you really look at the people that are traveling, they really have been given everything by God. God is not only the one protecting them, he's the one that supplied all of the treasure that they're traveling with. And it's the enemy that wants to take away from them. And so Ezra makes it clear, the hand of God is protecting us against the hand of the enemy that wants to take away from us. Well, they make it to Jerusalem, they wait a few days, and then they make it into the temple, and they begin to weigh out all of the items to make sure that their inventory is still there. And watch what happens in verse 33. They bring it into the house of God and into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. This word hand is not a closed hand, but now we're back to the open hand concept of God. Now that they're in the house of God, they're approaching a servant of God. That servant has his hand open to receive God's gifts, not for himself, but for the temple. So all of the work that they did in traveling has been supplied by God, protected by God, and now has been delivered to a servant of God to be given back to God. God has orchestrated all of the work that Ezra and his priests and Levites and families are doing. God has orchestrated that so that they would be protected and God would be honored. This is the work that Ezra is doing in Jerusalem. He is making sure that, that God is coming back to the center of their worship there in the temple in Jerusalem. Let's take a look at Nehemiah's work now. Remember, when Nehemiah was commissioned, uh, he wanted to go back and he wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He sent word back to Jerusalem and asked how the walls and the gates were, and they said the city has become a reproach. There's no walls. The gates have been burned down. We are humiliated. And, and remember, Nehemiah just broke down about that. He wanted to go back and rebuild those walls. So it's, it's easy to understand what temple worship, why that's important to our faith. But looking at Nehemiah, my first thought is, what's so important about walls? Why, why would that be something that affects Nehemiah the way that it does? Well, Nehemiah has that passion because walls serve a very practical purpose to a city's defense. When, when you established a city back in biblical times, you didn't just go and set up a few houses and call it good. You found a water supply. You made sure that that water supply was on the same route that you could get somewhere else so that people could pass through, and if you live there, you could travel to other communities to trade. You would have a market, you would have a center for worship, and you would have residency, but all of that meant nothing if you didn't have walls to protect the city. That was the main defense that cities had. 
And so for Nehemiah, there's a practical purpose to setting up the walls, and that's simply that it's a defense of the city and it's a defense of the temple. So if the Jews are moving back into Jerusalem and resettling there, they can't just have open walls. They need walls that are rebuilt to protect God's people. And so Nehemiah is thinking practically, we need to have protection, we need to rebuild these walls. But then he's also thinking of the temple. He's also thinking of the center of worship. We need to rebuild walls so that the center of worship is going to be protected by the enemy. But there's a third point too, and and it's not up on the screen, but the third point is just very simply goes back to chapter 1. When word is sent back to Nehemiah, that word is sent back as saying, we've been humiliated. Jerusalem used to be our capital city, and now we don't even have walls to protect us. We're still living here, but it's nothing like it used to be. And so Nehemiah, when he's going back, he's wanting to build up not just the walls for for the temple, walls for the city, defense, but he wants to go back and he wants to rebuild in order that, that the city would be what it was again, and that is the capital city. So Nehemiah is going back and he's building up God's people by building up the walls. Now, of course, with anything like this, you're going to run into enemies. And sure enough, Nehemiah runs into a number of enemies. There's a few that, that immediately come to the forefront, and they don't like that the Jewish people are returning, and they don't like especially that they've rebuilt a temple, and they especially don't like that they're rebuilding a wall. Because if they have the temple and they're rebuilding the wall, well, that means that this city is going to thrive once again. And so they have enemies there that are wanting to destroy the work that they have done. And so they try to discourage them in two different ways. One of them is just simply through uh, verbal discouragement. They stand there and they see the work that they're doing and they make fun of it. Um, If you've ever worked construction, one of the most discouraging things that you can run into is when you think you're doing your job right and somebody comes up and tells you that you're doing your job wrong. I was working for my father-in-law one summer, and and I had to put up siding in a certain place, and I missed the markings and everything. And listen, my father-in-law is a great guy. He's seen me make mistakes, and all he does is correct it. But he had a coworker with him that really felt like it was his job to humiliate me. And I remember him getting so mad, he had a hammer, and he just started hitting the siding off the wall and, and said some things that I don't want to repeat in a sermon. But basically, he humiliated me. He made sure that I felt humiliated in front of my boss, my future father-in-law. That didn't feel good. Well, that's what these people are doing to those that are rebuilding the wall. They're sitting there, and they're humiliating them in front of their work. In fact, one of them even says, look at this wall. It's so flimsy, if a fox were to jump on top of it, it would break down. Have you ever seen a fox? They're small little things. What do they weigh, like five or ten pounds? And so the point being, you know, even even an enemy like a fox could break through this barrier. Why are you guys rebuilding the wall? You shouldn't be doing this. Well, when the verbal attacks don't break through, they begin to conspire to actually kill them in order to stop them from building the wall. 
And so they start to conspire. What we need to do is we need to be killing them. And once they see that we kill them for rebuilding this wall, well, then they'll be discouraged and then they'll stop. They haven't met Nehemiah. Because what we have in the next few verses is is a really interesting military strategy that Nehemiah puts together. He knows that the main work that they're supposed to do is to rebuild the wall, but he also knows that they plan on coming to kill them. And so he puts together this idea, well, we'll just carry weapons with us. And if they want to attack us while we build the wall, we're going to fight back. And so he he puts together this plan that some workers, they'll carry the load in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. And there's other workers, they're probably laying the the mortar or the bricks down. And as they're working, he's got somebody behind him with a sword and, and a shield or a spear and breastplates. And then on top of that, Nehemiah says, we're too spread out. So everybody carry a weapon with you, either in your hand or a sword at your side. Everybody get a bodyguard that's going to be a lookout. But we're also too spread. So I'm going to go up and down the wall. And if I see that the enemy is attacking, I'll have my trumpeter trumpet out and then everybody can come and rally at that point. If they want to fight, we'll fight back, but we're not going to waste our time fighting. We're still going to build this wall. And notice how Nehemiah phrases all of this in verses 15 through 20. He attributes all of this to God's leading. The first thing he says is, God frustrated the enemy's plans. He point, it, it, he's pointing out it wasn't them with their weapons. It wasn't them with their strategy to protect themselves. It was God. They planned on killing them, and God made sure that it didn't happen. And then at the end of it all, he says, if we do need to fight back, our God will fight for us. So even if we're doing the battle, It's God who's actually fighting for us so that we can accomplish his work in this city. So what does that leave us with? Where do we go from here? Well, first of all, from from Ezra's passage, we should keep in mind, in all of the work that we do, anything that we own is not our own. Anything we own is not ours. Uh, My son Jude is is about five years old, and I've been pulling out some of my childhood toys for him to play with. And and some of the toys that that, uh, he loves the most are the Legos that I grew up with. And so he's got my Legos that I pulled out for him. Well, then we've been buying him Lego sets to play with. Well, one day I, I just got on him, and I said, Jude, There are Legos all over this house. And I don't know if you've ever stepped on a Lego. It is quite possibly the worst pain you can experience. Yeah, that's how I broke the wrist. Uh, But I mean, Legos are just everywhere. And I finally told him, I said, Jude, it's it's to the point. If you don't clean up your Legos, I'm going to put them back away. And he thought about it for a moment. And he said, and he looked at a few of them. And he said, but those aren't my Legos. Jude, don't lie to me right now. Those are your Legos. And he said, no, Daddy, those are your Legos. 
Needless to say, we had a further conversation about what giving and taking means. But that's the idea that God is looking for, is that whatever he has given us, whatever is in our possession, our mindset is still that this is God's. This is still God's items. And so whatever we have and whatever we use, we should be looking through the lens of, God, how do you want me to use what you have given me today? Much like when when Ezra weighed out the gold and the silver, he knew this wasn't his And the priests and the Levites, they knew it wasn't theirs. The enemy wanted to take it, but it wasn't theirs either. So God made sure they didn't take it. And then when they got into the house of God, the servant of God knew that wasn't his. This is all God's. What do you want me to do with it? So that's the question that we should be asking ourselves. What do I have that I haven't given to God? And what does he want me to do with it? The second point here. We trust in God, not in man. Our trust is first and foremost in God. So when Ezra set out, he had the opportunity to take the king's army and to lead the way into Jerusalem. But Ezra wanted to prove a point. The point being, we don't need your protection. This has been given to us by God. God will make sure no one takes it. God will make sure we're not harmed in transporting it. The same goes for us. We should be having a kingdom view of the work that we're doing here on earth, knowing that everything comes from God. God is going to be the one to give us direction. God is going to be the one telling us where to go and what to do, and it's going to be God that's providing the protection along the way. The third point, and and this sort of goes with the second point, our kingdom work is going to be protected by God. If God is the one that calls us to do it, he's going to be the one that makes sure that we have the resources to accomplish it. And now to the the fourth point, these three sort of all work together. We don't do this alone. We're, we're, we're not set out in our Christian life uh, to be the sole worker, the only one that gets something done. We're doing this together. And when we're asking for the protection of God, think of Nehemiah and all of the people that were in the city. He didn't just make one person in charge of protecting the walls. Everybody came with a weapon. Of course, I I would highly suggest if you go to witness to people, don't carry your Bible in one hand and a weapon in another. That's not the kind of protection we're talking about, but we are talking about the kind of protection with one another that says, can you pray for me? I'm feeling attacked. Having that discernment to know, you know, the enemy doesn't want me to accomplish this work. Can you pray for me and give me defense? We know that God's hand is going to be over our work. We know that that God is going to fight for us. But we need to keep in mind that we are called to pray for that protection and pray for that defense for one another. So as we leave this place and and we go out into our community, to our place of work, anywhere that, that we approach, 
We need to have a kingdom mindset of what work God has called us to do, a kingdom mindset of the protection that God is going to provide for us, and also a kingdom mindset of the work that we do together to pray for one another for protection, to pray for one another that God would go with us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for whatever work you call us to do. And we know, God, that whatever work you call us to do, there's nothing too big and nothing too small. So we ask, Lord, for your discernment in all of this. We ask for your discernment in where do we go next? Who do we speak to about you? What work is there to do in this community that would share your love and would share the kingdom of God? We ask, Lord, that you would be with us as we go, and we ask, God, that you would bless us. We pray this all in your name. Amen.